0: What's going on guys? It's your boy Daniel DeBrock here. Thanks so much for jumping on the uh, the podcast. Today I'm sitting down with Bill Campbell. So this is Bill's second time on the, the show. And today we're going to be talking about how to lose fat without losing strength. I know this is something that a lot of lifters really struggle with because, you know, especially nowadays where social media is, is available, we're seeing more power lifters who are actually like in shape. <laughs> and so it's kind of becoming a little bit more of a of a, of a draw that people want to actually be in shape and as well as be strong. So first off, Bill, thanks so much for jumping on again, man. It's great to have you here.
1: Yeah, thank you for the invite. I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: Yeah, so for those of you who maybe didn't, or sorry, for those who didn't maybe catch the uh, the first episode or who, who aren't really familiar with you, can you give a little bit of a background of, of who you are and kind of what you've been doing?
1: Sure, yeah. So um, I got my PhD from Baylor University in exercise, nutrition, and preventive health. That was 2007. And I am now a professor of exercise science at the university of South Florida, which is in Tampa, Florida. And there I direct the performance and physique enhancement laboratory. So my research areas, um, initially was sports nutrition, then it, it, it went into powerlifting for a while. And then for the last five years, it's been really focused on fat loss through different diets, resistance training, dietary supplements so i'm I'm in the the bodybuilding world of research, so to speak, even though my research primarily serves uh what what most people call lifestyle clients they they're they're people who are very serious about their exercise and their nutrition, and they want to look like bodybuilders, but they don't necessarily have a plan to step on stage so that's what that's where my current research has been has been focused um other than that. Um, What else has been going on? I I have a research review coming out. We'll talk about that uh, after we get through the main meat of our conversation. So I'm very excited about that. Um, I think that's about it. I just got back from the International Society of Sports Nutrition's annual conference. So we got to present some data there. But um, other than that, I I think everything's pretty stable, which is kind of like my boring life.
0: That's awesome, man. What a cool name for a lab too. (laughs) That's, that's pretty awesome. Um, so I guess the first place to start is when a, when a lifter is looking to decrease their body fat, a lot of the times it's kind of comes at an arbitrary time. So before the actual, uh, commencement of any sort of fat loss diet, what are some important considerations that a performance-based athlete, uh, needs to kind of take into consideration prior to either starting or even designing their, their program?
1: All right. And I'll give a little context. I've looked at this in detail um, because again, I I do diet research. That's what I do. Caloric restriction, caloric deficits. My main focus has been on preserving muscle mass. So in our conversation, we're going to talk about strength, but I'm going to make the assumption that if you maintain your muscle mass, you will also maintain your strength. Now that may or may not be true. And I know that's a very uh, that's a very hot topic amongst some people in our space. Like, is there a relationship between strength and size, but for our purposes, because I know the research on muscle size, maintaining that. And I think there is more research on that than there is in this powerlifting world in terms of dieting. So grant me that, and then we can get into those nuances if that's true or not. If, if we, cause I, you know, I, obviously you're an mm-hmm. expert in this area as well. So I, I'm sure you have thoughts on this.
0: Um, I think but, practically it's a pretty decent proxy. Personally, like mm-hmm. if you maintain, you know, the vast majority of your muscle mass, you're probably also simultaneously doing as good a job as you possibly could to preserve your strength. So I think it's, I think it's a fairly reasonable thing to to assume, anyway. So I, I'm I'm right on board with you.
1: Okay. Yeah. And it's funny in the bodybuilding world, as as we have competitors dieting, we use strength as a proxy for their muscle mass for people who can't right, get right, right, yeah, that's, assessments. That's so we use it both ways.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: so I, I guess I would start, you, you have two options to lose fat, two primary options. Well, I guess three, if you want to throw in supplements, but a power lifter or performance-based athlete can either reduce their calories or they can increase their cardio. So with with a strength-based athlete, there's a little bit of fear, and I would say justified if you're relying on aerobic exercise or cardio as your primary means to to lose body fat so i would push the effort more into a caloric deficit so the first thing that we would that i would say is that you want to guard against is extremes so if if you are going to reduce your calories by 50% for a period of time just know that you are signing up for a loss. If you're going to lose strength, you're going to lose fat-free mass. So that would be the first thing. Let's avoid extremes. Let's avoid the the, the polar efforts, where again you're in a situation where you're just going to just starve yourself. You're you're asking, yeah, you will lose fat, that, that, no question, but you're going to lose muscle mass and you're you're going to lose strength. So there's the the global picture. Uh, be very, um, I, so I guess I'll just summarize globally. Let's avoid extreme cardio. So relying on cardio, hundred percent, and let's avoid severe caloric deficits. I, I don't know if you wanted to, to comment back on those. Again, this is big picture stuff right now.
0: Yeah. So I, I would actually like to go into, into your perspective on cardio, and I guess we can kind of expand the scope of cardio to just sort of down to general physical activity. So maybe things like walking or trail hiking or different things that are maybe lower impact or higher impact cardiovascular type training. So if you wanted to go into that, I think that would be really interesting because um, I think that does have a reasonable amount of, of practicality for uh, power lifters, or at least like yeah. especially recently there's been more interest in it.
1: So th- here's where I am gonna have to delineate hypertrophy or or lean mass and strength. So what the research suggests in terms of cardio and lean mass, I I like to refer to it as concurrent training. Some people call it the interference effect. Mm -hmm. What we see in the literature is, is not what's commonly perpetuated in the, in the space, Mm -hmm. meaning that adding cardio to your resistance training program really has no impact on your muscle mass. Now I'm going to talk about some caveats to that research literature because they're, they're big. But if you're just looking at the data, and I did this, uh, I took a deep dive on this. And one of the things that I did was I separated the 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 like the um, the more general body composition measures like DEXA and skin folds and ultrasound. So we call those two compartment models. Generally speaking, no. Well, let me let me let me preface it with this before people get too excited. Almost all of these studies were in non-resistance trained males. So we don't have people with a lot of muscle mass going around. And remember this only applies right now. We'll start getting to the strength literature. This only applies to maintaining lean mass when adding cardio to a resistance training program, but the Dexa, the, the ultrasound, the underwater weighing, they didn't really show a decrease. Then if you go to the MRI data, same thing. Um, in fact, a few studies would suggest with MRI data, they actually gain lean mass when you're adding cardio to resistance training program. And then we also have this category of muscle fiber. So you get this from biopsies, that data, the, 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 the area, the muscle fiber area, also no, no real negative impact from adding cardio. Now, the important aspect here, the population is previously non-resistance trained males. So what happens if we have somebody who's enhanced or who has just carries a lot of muscle mass? Does that same data apply to them? Well, based on the evidence, we don't know. So that's where I, I'm going to rely on the experienced people in the space. What are they experiencing? Strength is a little different. My research on strength was if cardio got too high, and this is not walking, this is not um, trekking. I forgot what the other term you used. Um, if if the aerobic activity was too much we did start to see some decreases in maximal strength and particularly in the lower body. Mm-hmm. Now, would that happen with walking? I don't know. Um, I think it would be much less likely if at all, but that, that's, that, was, that's my, that, is, that was my interpretation of the literature in strength-based athletes. There's a little bit more of a justified fear if you're a strength athlete, no fear if you're a recreational lifter, and then we have to get into, like you said, walking, maybe weighted vest stuff. Um, I just don't know, and that's where I would ask you, what do you think? What what have you observed in that in that area?
0: Yeah, I kind of tend to agree with you on that as well. I, I think that it's less about like an actual interference effect and just sort of a, a reallocation of recovery resources, right? Like if you know, if you think of it as like a bucket and we fill a bucket eighty percent up with with your resistance training and then we do twenty percent cardio you're not going to be able to exert as much effort or focus and attention on your training and your recovery. And so it's sort of the way I see it. That's sort of how I think a lot of strength athletes sort of view it at least basically in, in the circles that, that I'm, I'm in. So basically the same thing as you, um, but I suspect it's more a byproduct of um, not necessarily being able to recover, you know, as opposed yeah. to like some sort of mechanistic, you know, like interference mechanism or feedback.
1: I love how you I just love the language. It's not so much about the interference effect, which is physiological. It's potentially, I guess I would caveat that Mm -hmm. to your reality, to your allocation of recovery resources. That that's, I like that. That's, that's a different paradigm of thinking, which I don't think that's been, it's always, this area is always researched on the interference effect what happens in the cell or, or, you know, the outcome of strength. But I, I I like the idea of the paradigm of a recovery.
0: Yeah, cool. I'll I'll take, I'll I'll take the compliment. No big deal. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense to what you're saying um, as far as like, Differentiating between obviously sort of like just general recreational lifters, bodybuilders, and then obviously strength athletes. So I think that's really really great advice. Um, and so getting into the the dietary component, then looking at caloric restrictions. Obviously, you're saying you know avoiding those polar extremes of you know 50% caloric reduction or, or something you know as a proxy of that. Uh, so so where would you potentially start an individual, and then how might you progress that process from a, from a dietary standpoint?
1: Yeah. So there's um, three caveats here or or three principles, uh, which everybody's going to do the one you have to continue to train. Like you have to have that stimulus. So again, I don't think we're worried about that in in, in your audience. So continuing to train at a high intensity. Let's assume that's being done. Now, what do we do with diet? And again, now I'm going to go back to the assumption that if we maintain muscle mass, we're going to maintain strength we've done multiple weight loss studies in my lab in in fit people and pretty much the 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 perspective that we take is what i would call a moderate caloric restriction so it's not real it's not conservative and it's not aggressive and and what that is is once you have your maintenance calories if you know how many calories you can eat and not gain or lose weight if you know that value if you reduce that by 25% over, the you know, six, eight, twelve weeks, the data from my lab and in others, that seems to be a great approach to induce fat loss and maintain muscle mass. Now, the other pillar here is we already said you have to continue to resistance train or strength train. The other is you're going to have to prioritize protein out of those calories. So what we've done in my lab is um, anywhere from 1.6 grams per kg to 2.2 grams per kg or that's um, about 0.75 to one gram per pound so as long as you're within that ballpark uh, let's just say a gram per pound or 2.2 grams per kg you're doing everything you can to help support the muscle mass the lean mass that you have and the the really cool thing is is your resistance training Almost all of the weight loss is coming from body fat stores. And that's just not happening in the non-resistance training populations. They they lose, you know, in some cases, half of each. Um, In the obese literature, it's usually about three-fourths, so 75% fat, 25% muscle. But I I think we're at the point now where we have enough data uh, that if if it's about 25%, if protein's high and resistance training is, is intense enough, we're we're pretty much shedding fat and maintaining the muscle mass
0: mm-hmm. that's awesome and so um in terms of in terms of the actual effect that uh the caloric restriction has like how how does that actually pan out because in in strength training anyways 25 percent like 25 percent, probably not that much for for um uh gosh i'm just like brain dead right now For like a bodybuilder or a typical weight loss plan like exactly like you said it's not conservative but it's not overly aggressive it seems very reasonable right but for for a strength athlete what kind of would you still use the 25 percent mark or is that a little too much or do you think there's much of a difference at all um well
1: we we know that we're maintaining muscle mass so i i'm a relatively conservative person on on many fronts Mm -hmm. so i would Cheat more towards less than 25% for a strength performance athlete. I would say 25% might be at the higher end. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think, we published, you know, we we, uh, we published two or three powerlifting studies several years ago, but never in a dieting situation. Mm-hmm. I don't have that to rely on from my own lab. Um, but yeah, 25%, again, we know it maintains lean mass given the other principles that we shared. But for a strength performing athlete, and again, some there's careers based on this where people have to perform, I, if at all possible, let's, let's go more conservative because if your performance dictates your income or your, you know, just your, your standing, if there's, hopefully there's not a reason you have to be extreme or an, an immediate loss of body fat, which would compromise performance. Now, bodybuilders do have the luxury because that is just as much about low fat as it is muscle so they have a little more play Um, nobody cares right nobody cares how lean maybe instagram cares but nobody cares on the platform how lean you are they just can care about your total if if i'm correct
0: Mm -hmm. yeah okay and so where would you put that roughly like are you thinking between 20 to 25 percent 15 to 25 percent or
1: yeah so so there i would make that um an individualistic prescription so how much does the body how much fat do they want to lose and again if it's a little let's go i I mean i wouldn't go below 15 percent because my thinking here is and this is not based on data there's going to be some level of caloric deficit that um causes hunger even psychologically even if i'm not in a caloric deficit but i think i am i'm probably psychologically just going to be more grouchy I'm thinking I'm gonna be more hungry. So you don't wanna get in a deficit where hunger's elevated, but the loss of body fat is 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 next to nothing. So you wanna get the biggest bang for your buck. And again, 25% was perfect for maintaining lean mass and shedding body fat. Right. Strength-based athlete, I would say that's the upper level, um, probably somewhere between 15 to 25% of mm-hmm. a caloric deficit, protein being high, again, 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kg continuing high-intensity training, um, and depending on the the timeline for wanting to lose the body fat, to me, would dictate, let's go 15, very conservative. Oh, let's go 20, a little faster, or 25, um, probably the fastest I would recommend for a strength performance athlete.
0: Mm-hmm. Totally, yeah, that makes sense. And so um, when, when you are looking at, uh, let's say, a strength athlete who's looking to lose weight, how would, let's say, proximity to competition affect some of these decisions? Just because I know a lot of the times people can make emotional decisions based on, you know, like, oh, I want to get lean now. And and they don't necessarily factor in like some of these additional variables or considerations that that might actually impact performance probably a little bit more. So like obviously in season versus off season, or if they are in season, you know, what proximity they are to the actual uh, competition date.
1: Yeah. So one area as we get closer to the competition date, I want to make sure I'm not speaking out of my expertise. So I don't have a lot of expertise in dropping water, um, the huge fluctuations. So I wouldn't be able to comment on that. I, I've never coached a powerlifting athlete. But as you get closer to competition, if the goal is to lose weight more quickly, one thing from a nutritional standpoint that's very effective is a low carbohydrate diet. Because if you can reduce carbohydrate, uh, the storage form, we call that glycogen in the skeletal muscle um, and in the liver for every gram you lose, you also lose about three grams of water. So you can lose quite a bit of body weight very quickly by just cutting carbohydrates. So going on a very low carbohydrate, you're gonna see a big drop in body weight. Um, What effect does that have on strength? Um, and powerlifting, I would suggest very minimal because you're not real, you're not reliant on carbohydrates to a high level in, co- in the competition lifts, just because it's, it's very, from an energy system standpoint, it's very ATP, PCR, what we call the phosphagen system dependent. Now that doesn't mean that carbs aren't important. I don't want to say that, but in the short term for a, a competition day, if you do reduce carbs. Now you might feel like crap and then there's a psychological in effect on your performance, but physiologically, or in terms of bioenergetics, you're going to reduce your body weight because of lowering the carbs, but your body's not really dependent on those carbs for performance in the power lifting lifts where, you know, where you're doing you know, one maximal repetition.
0: Right. Yeah. I know that makes sense. And so that, that's definitely, I think, um, I'd say reasonably standard practice is like a, a carb cut with a water load and just different things like that. And then we'll usually carb up the next day. So that does sound pretty consistent with what well, you actually see power lifters doing for the most part. Mm-hmm. Or, and, and I also like that you kind of made that distinction of being like a temporary significant reduction, obviously before, just to kind of make weight, um, just to clarify for, for some people who are maybe listening. So in terms of, um, in terms of being a little bit further out, obviously there's a little bit more room to to kind of mess around with. And so if you, let's say, wanted to take a, a slightly more aggressive approach, because one of the things that I think actually is really interesting that, that you mentioned earlier was there is there does appear to be like a certain level of calorie deficit where you're in a deficit, you feel like shit, you're more hungry, but then you're not really <laughs> seeing a whole lot of results. So it's like the worst of both. And so obviously if you wanna suffer, or if you're gonna suffer, you may as well suffer for something you know beneficial. Um, so if you are farther away and you have a little bit more flexibility with potentially your, your diet, the level of, of restriction you can get, how might you adjust your training to reflect that and to maybe aid or assist in your recovery and performance? Like what sort of things might you adjust or remove or potentially add to, to the training that, that you're doing? Obviously it's going to be highly individual, but just sort of big picture umbrella type thing.
1: So are are you suggesting that we're that we're out a few weeks we're not close to competition day
0: so like off season like competition is nowhere really in sight you know but yeah
1: um my approach there would be obviously to i I'm, i'm a believer in specificity so you you practice the lifts now again i'm i'm not a powerlifting coach so i know this field is advanced so a lot of your listeners would say well i'm just not I'm not doing what's commonly prescribed but if it's just as a strength and conditioning professional i'm gonna try if it's off season i'm gonna try to maximize my strength especially if i know a diet period is going to come up i would help buffer that dietary period that that um fat loss period that's in the that's looming in the future so i'm going to not definitely not want to i don't want to diet um When I'm trying to maximize my strength, then that works against you. And I just real quick, um, dieting has, there's, there's three main physiological negatives. One is muscle protein synthesis is significantly lowered when you're in a caloric deficit. Uh, The other is the other end of that spectrum is muscle protein breakdown, which you'd like that to be low. That's significantly increased during caloric deficit. And then we have something referred to as anabolic resistance that occurs in a caloric deficit. And that's been shown in two studies that I'm aware of in males. That's where under a normal situation, your body releases growth hormone, and then the growth hormone induces the the synthesis of IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1, which is a very anabolic hormone. When that goes up. There's Obviously, there's there's receptors on skeletal muscle, so that will be uptaken by skeletal muscle. The other thing that IGF-1 does, it acts as a negative feedback loop to the pituitary gland, which is what will release growth hormone, and it tells the, the body, stop releasing growth hormone. So you don't have a huge increase in growth hormone. What happens during a caloric deficit is GH, growth hormone, is put out, and in fact, it goes up and up and up. But the resistance part, the anabolic resistance part, is that IGF-1 is blunted. So now we don't have this anabolic hormone floating around as much. And second, we don't have the negative feedback loop to tell growth hormone to stop being produced. So that's why we see, um, like in dieting situations, particularly with fasting studies, growth hormone is through the roof. But it's not anabolic growth hormone in that situation is lipolytic it's causing greater fat loss so if you stop eating you're going to lose a lot of fat but because of all these other negative consequences due um, related to skeletal muscle it's just not your friend Mm -hmm. so why did i when i went into all this physiology in the off season i want to get strong i don't want to diet i don't want to shortchange myself um by by dieting in the off season. Now, of course, you already mentioned there's going to be individual scenarios where maybe an athlete does need to diet. And Then we're just going to we're just going to approach that with the strategy that we've already discussed. Take a moderate approach. Keep protein high. Keep training intensity high.
0: Mm-hmm. It's funny, actually, because I literally made a post yesterday. I think about uh, growth hormone. You know, the transient increase and in how it disrupts the the uh, GH IGF one axis. Um, yeah. And- I said, like literally everything you said, I was just like, yeah, that's basically the exact same thing. So it's just funny that you're talking about that here. Um, Yeah. Okay. So, so that, that totally makes sense. And obviously you kind of want to optimize whatever strategy or whatever stage of of development you're in. So if you are in the off season, your recommendation, uh, outside of specific individual circumstances, obviously would be to prioritize strength and development during that phase then. Yep. Mm -hmm, Awesome. And so, there are a couple things that you, um, you mentioned, actually, that aren't necessarily directly part of this talk, but I, I've just been really interested. in one of them was um, weighted apparel. So you know, a weight vest or whatever it might be regarding fat loss, whether or not it um, has any sort of potential protective effects for, let's say, metabolic adaptation or um, how it might impact strength and performance preservation. I'm not sure if you're familiar with any about, anything about that. I haven't found tons and tons of research on weighted apparel. So when you mentioned it, I kind of got like a little bit excited.
1: <laughs> yeah, and now I'll disappoint you. I don't have knowledge from the research. Now, I, there may be some research. The only thing I have is anecdotal from people that I've talked to in the bodybuilding realm. Yeah. Um, some of them in an in an effort to keep their resting metabolic rate from plummeting. They'll, as they're losing weight, they'll keep adding on weight to their weight vest so that the body perceives it as, Hey, I didn't lose weight. So I need to keep my, as I'm, you know, going through my daily activities of living, I need to, to expend more calories. Um, just anecdotally, the feedback that I get from the bodybuilders, they like it. They think it's helpful in, in fat loss and, and, and keeping energy expenditure high. Now, I would say, as somebody who's middle aged and got a family, I don't want to wear a vest all day. <laughs> so that might be a little bit more of a young person's game. Um, to me, it would violate just doing things within a normal lifestyle. Um, but I I, I don't have knowledge of strength athletes utilizing this in a diet phase. Um, just trying to just, just off the top of my head, trying, trying to think. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, one thing and I'm not an orthopedic uh, researcher at all, but their their joints are already under a lot of stress <laughs> with their lifting. <laughs> yeah. Do I really wanna have a chronic weighted vest stress on the joints for the rest of the day? Eh, I don't know, again, it's,
0: it's
1: just my gut response. M- maybe let the joints relax <laughs> when you're not under the bar
0: yeah man that's been something i've been really really interested to try but i think like if i wanted to get a good quality weighted vest with a sufficient amount of load it would cost me about four to five hundred dollars so i'm like oh i really want to try it but i don't want to spend like 500 bucks on on a little you know thought experiment i don't know so i i actually might end up going through with it just because i'd be really really curious because i have heard so many really cool things even from like james krieger and like some of the other bodybuilders again just a lot of anecdotal stuff but to the point where i'm like it's piqued my interest quite a bit so i yeah. would really love for to to see i guess more people kind of like experiment with it and just sort of see what what, what they think about that um but yeah no thanks for your feedback on that and the yeah. other thing
1: was- let me let me add one thing to that let me be negative nancy for 30 <laughs> seconds yeah i'll just bet that people that have invested in weighted vests they use it once they like it they post about it it's it's great i'll just bet that most people it sits in the garage after that first time
0: yeah it's, yeah it's a
1: very large hurdle to make that part of your life Now i could be wrong i don't know i don't go in people's garages taking pictures of weighted vests that are collecting dust but i do know how people post things they post things when it's new when it's exciting when it's hot um you know popular does that have staying power? I doubt it.
0: Yeah, no, that's fair. I guess like one one thing too is I, if I were to do it, I would definitely make a couple of adjustments. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't wear it like permanently because that just sounds terrible and entirely impractical. Um, but I do go for quite a few walks every day. I try and get yes. about 10,000 steps a day. So I would toss it on as I was going for a walk. And I think that that, my assumption anyways, that would probably be sufficient to gain most of the benefits. Let's say it's 70%, right? That's still a pretty big benefit, you know? So, and again, obviously, I'm just like throwing out random numbers, but I would assume that like if I were to do that, that would be a reasonable enough proxy to get, you know, a, a decent amount of benefit from it. So it's something that I'm kind of looking to do. And I, I don't know, we'll, we'll see.
1: That makes sense, though. If if walking's a part of your normal training lifestyle, yeah. Or recovery that that makes a lot of sense
0: yeah I guess it's so funny too because like I guess even just to to comment on that like when I'm thinking about the weighted apparel and I think this is probably relevant for how people consume information in general like when I hear something I'm like oh here's how I'm gonna apply it to my life and then you assume that's how the individuals is meaning for the application because when you were like oh I think it'd be really impractical and I'm like wait, you don't go for walks. And then I was like, I was automatically assuming that you go for walks just like me. And I was also automatically assuming that you weren't going to wear it, like while you're cooking or with your family or whatever. And that just isn't the case because I think that is how most people are doing it as far as, as far as I'm aware, but I just totally slipped my mind. Um, so it's, it's funny how, yeah, like I guess the application can really depend based on how you're interpreting something. Obviously I interpreted it in a very, like very different way, but, um, uh, yeah i guess i'm kind of rambling now um what, what, sorry go ahead
1: no well, i was going to say just in the few bodybuilders that i've spoken to I, my impression is that they're trying to wear it as much as they can within their lifestyle when dieting yeah. um,
0: that, that's what i've heard too yeah um i just don't think that i would realistically do that a walk sure but there's no yeah. way i'm going to be doing that while i'm like working on my computer like whatever i'm just like oh no <laughs> yeah. yeah now
1: if you wanted to um i just had a few other thoughts about dieting for the strength athlete um Mm -hmm. if we wanted to kind of take that in um a little more detailed would you like would you want to go there next yeah so one of the things is we know that they're dieting i would suggest that they don't and that they don't that they would not do fasted training um especially if they're in a low carbohydrate diet because now you're just asking the body to break down protein to to help fuel the the training session and the body doesn't like to use protein for that but it will if you force it to and one of the ways you force it to do that is fasting and a low carbohydrate diet so i would make sure that i have some food and calories in me prior to my training session that will help to, to protect muscle mass the other thing that we can do um is we already mentioned about prioritizing protein but there's a more more than a few studies you know uh, i'm aware of a handful um about casein protein serving more as an anti-catabolic protein when compared to whey protein or soy protein so casein protein remember that's about 75 percent of the protein in in dairy milk Um, but you can buy casein protein so it's it's purified casein Um, that would be something that if I'm, if I'm worried about losing muscle mass, worried about strength, assuming that there's a direct relationship, casein protein would be something I would prioritize in, in a caloric deficit for that purpose. And then speaking of carbs post-workout, um, I would want to do what I can to elevate insulin levels because what insulin does is it suppresses muscle protein breakdown. So again, if we're concerned, I don't want to lose strength and we know that and again we're under this assumption that lean mass and strength are directly correlated if i can increase insulin levels post-workout that will help suppress or lower the rate of muscle protein breakdown which will which will help maintain my muscle mass you can do that two ways carbs obviously are awesome that that's really will will elevate insulin levels but so does whey protein whey, whey protein is very insulinogenic, so whey protein and carbs, you're, you're kind of really giving your body a, a boost in insulin from the pancreas that will help preserve lean body mass. So we talked about these global strategies. Now we can go to within the day strategies. And I would say, don't go into your training fasted, prioritize casein protein, um, throughout the day. And again, an easy, an easy time would be at night. And then also try to have insulin spikes be at post-workout. So those would be some, some more, um, acute strategies within the day as part of a, a more chronic fat loss phase.
0: Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. And so have you, have you seen anything in terms of protein overfeeding? Cause this is something that I've heard about. I, I have looked into it a little bit, but I've also seen different things between natural versus enhanced athletes. Um, so I'm not sure how much you know about the enhanced side of things or how much you've really looked into that but if you could maybe just I guess cover some of the the purported benefits and then maybe what the actual benefits are if they diverge at all and how might that impact uh, individuals differently whether based on their their uh, use of PEDs or anything like that
1: yeah so I I um I have a a delineation between natural and enhanced athletes so all of the research nearly everything is in natural athletes so i'm very cautious about saying oh enhanced athletes this is what the research says no it doesn't because the research wasn't in enhanced athletes Mm -hmm. so i'm i don't i don't extrapolate outside of this natural bodybuilding this you know like my subjects are always natural so what what I observe again I don't assume that applies to an enhanced athlete um I I there are some things um again I'm cautious to say yeah cardio won't reduce your muscle mass in natural athletes if um I don't know who's one of the biggest people on the planet right now. I'll just say jay cutler back a few years I don't I wouldn't I don't know if I would tell jay cutler, hey the research jay says that you're not going to lose muscle mass I would I, I wouldn't want to say that to him cuz I don't know the the research in heavily, you know, in enhanced athletes or people with carrying around large amounts of muscle mass. So I make that delineation. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So my, my knowledge of the protein overfeeding studies, which is really cool stuff. Um, here's what I, here's what I know. And, and people in my space give me a hard time about this. Um, either they don't believe it, which is odd because I can cite the studies, but in every study that I'm aware of, where they looked at protein overfeeding, As long as the resistance, as long as the subjects were resistance training, the subjects could overeat on protein, 300 calories, even up to 800 calories and not gain body fat. Either they don't gain any body fat or they lose body fat. Now I've done it in my own lab in um, resistance trained females. We overfed them on protein by 300 calories per day. They gain four and a half pounds of muscle lean mass. And they actually lost a significant amount of body fat compared to baseline levels. So I've seen it in my own lab. This is a
0: caloric deficit, or it means? Be-
1: no, no, no. Uh, caloric surplus. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So caloric deficit, we've already handled it. Um, you want to have high protein. So I don't call anything in a deficit overfeeding. To me, overfeeding means a surplus. Right. Yeah. So, but I'm not aware, again, I am aware of a handful of studies. If you increase your calories under these two conditions, all of the increase in calories is coming from protein and the people are resistance training. You do not gain fat, even in a caloric surplus, you either maintain your body fat or you lose body fat, which does not make sense. Thermodynamically. I I, I don't have an answer as to why,
0: but more than one study has reported this. In part of me, wonders about that. Cause like, obviously there is going to be an upper limit, right? Like you, you mentioned, I think it was 300 and up to 800. Calories. Well, one study, um,
1: this was Joey Antonio's study. Um, they overfed, they actually gave their subjects 4.4 grams per kg. Um, that was their high protein group. Their low protein group was like 2. Oh, I, think I read that. That's terrible. <laughs> That's
0: much protein.
1: Yeah. Now to, to be honest, the controls in that study were not good they didn't track their macros they did not supervise their workouts um like in my study we actually you know we 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 chart we don't always publish but we chart how much supplemental protein they get after their workouts they're taught how to track their macros so that we know by to the gram based on their estimation how many how many calories they're eating carbs protein fat we supervise every set every rep every workout for the for the duration of the study um, so yes, so that study did report a nearly 800 caloric surplus, all coming from protein. They didn't gain muscle mass, by the way, or lean mass, but they also didn't gain any um, any body fat. But admittedly, controls were not great. My study was a little more, um, it was better controlled. 300 calories, all coming from protein. Um, specifically, the females in that study were eating 2.5 grams per kg per day. That's the amount of protein they were eating, and prior to the study, coming in at baseline, I think they were getting about 1.4 grams per kg.
0: Okay, yeah, I mean that that seems really reasonable. Like if if you're in a 300 calorie surplus and it's all coming, like to me, anyways, it seems like very reasonable that that would be the case. So. Yeah, that, that was one thing that I've always kind of wondered about the protein overfeeding was because specifically about the controls, right? Because I've seen some that are really, really high. And I'm like, I don't know if that's going to pan out. I don't know if they're actually eating that much protein. Because like, I have tried a long time ago eating like super high protein. So even right now, my protein's the lowest it has been in a long time, and I'm still eating 300 grams. Ooh. Right? Yeah, at, at 270 body weight. Um, but at one point, I think I was eating 350 or 375 or something like that and I I don't really supplement so it was just all food and holy crap that is just a miserable experience.
1: At, yeah, at- without supplements that's that's hard. That's hard to do.
0: Yeah, and and that was that maintenance for me like I wasn't gaining weight. I definitely did notice that I looked leaner. I didn't feel quite as great obviously, but but I definitely look leaner. So a lot of the stuff in the research I felt like really did apply. But then I, part of me was also wondering, like, how many people are actually sticking to that level of adherence? That's always kind of been an interesting sort of question for me. And so I feel like the, the study that you ran under your lab is probably a lot more indicative of um, protein overfeeding than maybe some of the really, really high ones. At, at least it's sort of like my, my assumption. What, what would you sort of think about that?
1: Yeah, um, I, I guess in one aspect, we we train our subjects if they don't already know how how to track their macros. Is everybody going to do that? Is that practical for everybody? I don't know. In in the bodybuilding world, yes, most people are tracking everything. Um, but yeah, clearly, four point four grams per kg that's a lot of people are going to get up GI distress with that. That's, that's a lot of it's in fact. I I'd have to look, I I'm sure they reported that they lost quite a few subjects trying to maintain that much. Cause that's, that's just, that's a lot of protein. Um, the other thing is in my, in that study that I'm talking about, um, the subjects were given whey protein isolate, which is very easy on the stomach. Um, so that helped them reach that level. I don't think that would have been possible without supplemental protein.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think you really would have to supplement if you want to do it like from a sustainability standpoint. Um, yeah. so that definitely makes a lot of sense in terms of like one of the one of the controls. So, okay, yeah, that that's awesome. And so in terms of structuring your diet then from like a nutrient timing standpoint, um you talked about, making sure that you're going into your training session fed you talked about spiking insulin by biasing you know um, kind of like higher glycemic type carbohydrates and potentially implementing whey protein because it's going to be really stimulant like it's really insulinemic um how would you structure your your mac and your trains kind of throughout the day because that is something that obviously i think there's probably a little bit more flexibility there um so how would you look to to do that
1: Yeah. And the, my prior statement assumes that somebody was in a caloric deficit. So if you're already reducing your calories, I'm going to tell you, let's bias your carbs around your workout. I don't think that has any bearing in a non-dieting situation. I don't care where your carbs are if you're not dieting, but if you're dieting, particularly if your diet's severe, get your carbs around your workout, pre-workout. So you have some energy post-workout to, to spike insulin as we said. Now, in a normal training paradigm, so we're not in a caloric deficit, um, in terms of nutrient timing, um, I, I follow or adhere to what, what I refer to as like a protein anchored approach. So protein serves as the anchor of my, my feeding strategy. So what I say is, okay, let's get your total daily protein intake calculated and to make things easy, let's just say it's 2.2 grams per kg or a gram per pound of body weight, then I suggest let's you break that up into approximately three to five equal protein feedings throughout the day. And, and I base that on your lifestyle. I don't wanna create hurdles for somebody. What do you naturally do? What we do know, I'll give two scenarios, a non-dieting and then a dieting scenario. We do know that in a non-dieting situation, um, uh, from one study in humans in, in, in a resistance training population, evenly distributing the protein throughout the day. So morning, um, lunch and dinner actually re- resulted in a greater effect size for, for building lean mass than not. So when people skewed their protein towards dinner, so 15 grams for breakfast, 30, 35 for lunch, 60 for dinner versus Um, the same amount of protein, let's say it was 40-40-40, the subjects, these male resistance trained subjects were able to gain more lean mass having this morning, afternoon, and evening, even protein distribution. That same data is also reported in muscle protein synthesis studies, which have a cellular, um, cellular focus. So we see this at the cellular level and we see this at the the macro level when when we're looking at MRI-based muscle um, increases in muscle mass. So that's my advice for a non-dieting situation. If you're dieting, now we have to determine, okay, so we have a strength-performing athlete. I would ask them, you are dieting for a reason because you need to lose fat. How important is losing fat versus how important is it that you maintain your strength? If they they say, I have to maintain my strength during this time, then I'm going to say, okay, let's continue with this even distribution of protein throughout the day. I don't care what you do with carbs and fat, um, unless you're dieting, then I'm going to say prioritize that around your workout. But if they say, listen, I need to lose fat. If I sacrifice a little bit of performance during this time, that's okay. That fits into my longer term goals then i'm going to open up a new option for them a new dietary strategy and what i would present to them is something that i wouldn't have said a year ago that is time restricted feeding if they can if they can do fine on not eating in the morning and having their feedings in a period a shorter period of time then i'm going to say this is an option for you is it the best option to maintain lean mass no but it is the best option for some people to lose body fat Because some people have a very hard time restricting their calories, but they seem to not have a hard time restricting the times that they eat, even when they're still reducing their calories. Time-restricted feeding, according to the research, causes you to reduce your calories. But you're not focused on reducing your calories. You're focused on when you can eat. And in the research, it causes fat loss um, just as much as a flexible dieting um, re, um, study. That's one of the studies that i that I uh, reviewed in my um my research review. And it actually changed my thinking. I used to think, eh, time restrictive feeding is it's just popular now. But after seeing that study and and seeing how the subjects responded just as well to an actual dieting situation without consciously dieting, I said, okay, This is good for some people. And I just gave a scenario where it could be good for a strength performing athlete, as long as the two caveats are, do they, are they prioritizing fat loss above all else? Number one. And then number two, can they tolerate, um, a, a restricted feeding window? The answer is yes to both of them. That's something that I would present to them as an option and allow them to experiment with it.
0: That's actually really interesting. I've never heard um I, I've never seen the actual comparison between like time restricted feeding to like a flexible dietary approach and and so you' yeah. you're saying that the the review basically found that they were roughly equivocal yeah so what they
1: did the the researchers um and they also used resistance trained people in this study so this wasn't you know a typical weight loss study where it's a bunch of older obese people. this was actually re- now I don't think they were highly resistance trained but yeah. what they did um, and again, it's not often that I changed my mind on things. This one changed my mind. They had a flexible dieting group and I think they had them eat. The one thing that wasn't ideal, I think they told them to eat 1.4 grams per kg of protein. So I would say protein needs to be higher, but regardless, they had a flexible dieting group. I think the study was eight weeks of conscious dieting, two weeks of a uh, maintenance going into it. And then they had six weeks at the end of the diet where they where they didn't have any type of nutrition coaching. So the the flexible dieting group, they said, reduce your calories by 500 calories per day. And they did that. The time restricted feeding group, they said, don't change anything other than we want you to get this much protein. But you're not dieting like we don't want you to change what how much you would eat. The only thing we want you to do is don't eat before noon and don't eat past eight. And what naturally happened was they reduced their calories, according to the authors, by about 500 calories per day, nearly the same as the flexible dieting group. But I, and I'm not a nutrition psychologist, but I believe if you don't think you're dieting, that's powerful. Um, So at the end of the study, they both lost the same amount of fat. They both maintained their lean mass. So to me, the time-restricted feeding is is has a is a is a very good choice for some people now again i will caveat that if i always want to protect lean mass that's always my goal you can actually have a hybrid approach and have an early morning feeding of protein if you want to to help you know guard against the loss of lean mass during a time restricted feed now at that point it's no longer time restricted feeding uh, but you can do some things to help buffer that. But yes, you did. That study was really cool. Um, I think it was published recently, in the, like the last six months.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I've never, I've never seen that direct comparison before. That, that's really cool. In and
1: one, yeah, and it was in one the same study. Did it? They compared the two diets.
0: That's really cool. I, I would like to see that replicated because part of it is like I would wonder where their baseline protein intakes were um because i would assume that it could be possible that increasing protein independently might make people feel a little bit more satiated and could also influence that but i mean that sort of does replicate what you would see sort of anecdotally anyways right like where where i mean you cut off a certain amount of hours where someone can eat it's just gonna be harder to fit calories in right like just it it just makes sense logically and so yeah, that's a really cool comparison. I, I didn't know that, uh, that that research was was out. I've never seen anything like that. That's a really cool um, line of research, I guess, that, that's coming out. That's yeah. a new research review?
1: Yeah. So now I get, now it's a perfect plug. Yes. Yeah, get my research review fun. and you'll see, you'll get my uh, summary on it, you'll get my thoughts on it. And then the other thing that I do is I bring in other experts like um, physique coaches, registered dietitians, uh, physicians, other researchers, and I ask them, okay, I say, I just summarized the study. Now you tell us, how would you apply this research to your clients? Or how would you apply this to your own life? Um, and again, the, the, the people that I'm bringing in, either they have clients or they're just serious about their own exercise and nutrition. So that's part of the value that I, that I want my research review to, 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 um, to bring. It's not just a review of the research because that's not helpful. The real value is how do you apply it? And what I'm doing is I'm giving you options. And sometimes people disagree on how they apply it. And I love that. I actually love it when my experts take two different approaches. Because now I believe I'm serving the coaching profession, the evidence-based space, very well by saying you don't just replicate what the scientists did because scientists aren't coaches. No, let's learn different applications of this and how that could look.
0: Awesome. And so what, what is your research
1: Are you called? It's called body by science and it's solely focused on fat loss and building muscle. So I don't, not that health's not important, but I don't get into health and I don't really get into performance. It's, it's all about fat loss and muscle gain. And it's, um, I'll be launching it. Well, actually, it's by the time this is published it will be launched so um the first issue i have the inaugural issue for free so people can see if it's something they would like um if if i could ask your listeners just go to my website it's billcampbellphd.com you can download the inaugural issue for free and then if you want to subscribe it, 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 it it'll come out every month um I, I summarize two research articles per month and i bring in a male and a female perspective to apply that research to clients or to fitness enthusiasts.
0: That's awesome. So all that stuff's going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Definitely make sure you go and check that out. So where can people find you, Bill? So
1: my website, or if you go, if you're on Instagram, that's the only place that I'm that I'm active. Uh, my Instagram handle is Bill Campbell PhD, and of course, I'll be promoting my 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 new research review on there. So let me just say one more time um, billcampbellphd.com is my website. Um, go there, download the first inaugural issue for free to see if it's something that you think would bring you value and improve your own, I'm assuming
0: fitness, either your
1: own fitness or your profession. If you're, if you're in the fitness profession.
0: Awesome. So again, all that stuff's going to be linked up to the show notes. Make sure you follow him. Make sure you check out his website, check out his research review. Uh, Bill's been pumping out tons of awesome content. I know I've certainly learned a lot from you, um, ah, thank over you. the years. And so it's been really, really cool to actually have you on the podcast a couple of times and, and chat about these things. Um, so thanks so much for jumping on, man. Yes.
1: Thank you. Thank, um, thank you for, for the invitation and for allowing me to, to engage in what I love to do.